Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover, and thank you, Joseph, for the introduction. And everyone, I'm so delighted to be here with my friend and colleague, Patty Menzel. So welcome, Patty. Thanks, Casey. It is really great to have you here. And I'm going to, you know how you introduce people on podcasts, right? So Patty is a brilliant speaker and she's a brilliant trainer. And she is a liaison between uh, the commercial sector and uh, advocates for people with autism, right? Right, right. Thank you, Casey. Yeah, absolutely. But also what I am really impressed with is Patty's diction is so freaking good that when the transcripts come out, her transcripts are actually almost completely accurate. So I thought everybody had really bad transcription service or AI or whatever. And Patty burst my bubble. Uh, sorry, I, Casey. Yeah. Yeah. I have to face that. I need diction lessons or something. You get that in a dictionary, right? So Patty and I met in class, and um, she is teaching her own assistance dog. And um, I'm going to let her go into the detail on it. But the reason we're doing this podcast tonight in particular is I think that people need to think about the pluses and minuses of every training system, not to hate anything or close them down or whatever, but to realistically assess how we are seeing and using these tools. And I was steeped in operant conditioning. You know, this was kind of our currency in professional marine mammal training. I don't use Auburn conditioning very much at all now. I'm much more a cognitive trainer. And so, Patty, you and I were talking about various things. You really resonated with SATs. And then I said something like that about Auburn conditioning. And I was fascinated because you were really, you, you had very bad experiences with Auburn conditioning. Yeah, okay. So so let's talk about that. I think that's so important. Okay. When I was a youngster and applied behavioral analysis was a thing and it still is today. Um it was all about skill building and the way they would do that is to find something that an autistic person values. In my case it was beverages okay. and I don't know whether Ovaltine was new back then or it was new to me. But that was something that I could only have when this lady came over and if I jumped through her hoops. Otherwise, I wasn't allowed to have it. 
Um, so it was just the idea that something of value was being held away from me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they knew that I valued it. Um, and it was just the idea that I couldn't be believed in enough to even for them to consider that I might have intrinsic rewards as a possibility. Yeah. Um, and it was like they thought I wasn't human. They thought I had no personhood. Yeah. And that made a huge gulf between myself and anybody working with me. So now that I have this young dog, uh, this is a few years ago when I started working with my service animal, um, the trainers that were around to work with, whether um, on YouTube or in person, it was all pay him, pay him, pay him, pay him with food. Like with transact food. transactional. Um, yeah, and it, it was all about having this transactional relationship with the animal. And, you know, when he was a puppy, okay, I think that made clear sense to him for some things. So I'm not going to write it off entirely. Yeah. Um, and I'm not entirely against something like luring or shaping, all of those things. And I kind of understand that having a, a marker word and starting with food when they're little, I get that. Um, but at some point I realized that my dog had a real problem with food. His challenge were challenges were over arousal to begin with mm -hmm. and then bringing food in made it very difficult for him to focus. Settle. Mm -hmm. so kind of like complicated the issue. Like it yeah. might be okay for a task, but for his ability to cope with stress and manage his emotions, it stacked the deck against his ability to cope. And ironically, he's not even really food motivated, not off the property. He's not. Mm. Um, in fact, I would say about two weeks ago, just out of habit uh, or just out of the assumption, I had put a bag of treats on my hip when I was about to leave for the first time we've left in a year and to go out and work in community and my dog started screaming. So I took the treat bag and I put it in the fridge and I closed the door and he was better without it instantly. Oh, no. It was just value me. Remember, remember your own experiences value me. It's as if he was saying that. And it's also just too overwhelming to have something like that for him. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, to have that, it becomes a pressure for the animal, an additional pressure of not being understood. And the idea that somebody isn't looking deep enough to recognize yeah. the experience. I, I think that's so huge because, uh, for example, in the video of the rhino, that rhino could have been any place and he chose to come and interact with me. And the only thing I had to pay him was his chopped up fruits and vegetables that he got every day anyway, and could care less about some of them. So what made it interesting to him? And it was, I believe, the fact that I was sharing information. I was inviting him to the table to be part of the conversation. You know, I told them they want to flush this abscess under your horn. And they think this will help you. And they're so convinced of it, you can either do it with them 
or they will anesthetize you and bring in the shoot. Mm -hmm. And it was the funniest thing because, you know, I can't know for sure what he was thinking, but it's almost like he just narrowed his focus and he goes, okay, you've got my attention. Mm -hmm. So then we started this conversation. And the first thing about the conversation is I'm here in service to you. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that the intent is to help, not harm. But I think you really pinpoint something so important that the harm that we do when we do not see and recognize the animal, you know, the personhood of the animal, the intelligence, the responsibility the right of decision, then we're traumatizing that animal because we're acting like they're not smart. And that's a horrible thing to do to somebody else, you know, to to act like they're not quite as good as you. They're or different. to act object. Yeah. And, oh, to put action on to do what to put action upon yes i'm going to give you food i'm going to move you over here closer or farther from the trigger i'm going to treat you as if you're just an object to to yeah bidding yeah rather the ability like you were saying with the rhino to receive information to be included and involved to learn make decisions yeah make those choices to make decisions regarding his own body his own life his Mm -hmm. own his future yeah and and that is another thing that we really have to touch on and that is that as you say when people are coming to somebody with autism and they're treating them like i've heard you call it tabula rasa blank slate, we can impose, you know, personality perspective on this person. They totally tend to disregard the different needs, the different neurobiology that various people have. They, They act like you know, somebody with autism is confused. And if we just unconfuse them, they would be uh, typical. And, And there's a lot of work to suppress behaviors without acknowledging the fact that those behaviors are adaptive. They help people. Yeah. Very invalidating. And and they're not giving you another option. You want me to give up this thing, then give me something else that works just as well that also fits within your framework. Right. Give me a different stem, a different stereotypy or something that's going to give me equally as much bang for my buck. And the truth is, is that what I have works. And these are the free onboard tools that come with my neurology And the truth is we're pathologizing things that allow the person to maintain 
in the space, whether it's hopping and bouncing and spinning, whatever that person's doing, they're able to stay in that grocery store. Yeah, yeah. That- can you explain that in more detail? Because I think that's such a great example. So the one I remember is what it takes for you to stand in line at the deli counter. Yeah, it may take some hopping and some bouncing. So I'm getting some proprioceptive input from my brain, but it's calming me down. It's allowing me to focus and it's allowing me to maintain because behind me, there's a baby crying and somebody just dropped a jar of pickles and there's an announcement for somebody to come to register three and all of that is going on. And if I can bounce in place while I'm waiting for my deli order, I won't have to ditch and bail and leave all my groceries in my cart and get out of there. Instead, I stay long enough to get my order. I'm going to look different. There's no question. But I'm able to do that to self-regulate. That's the whole thing. This is self-regulatory. Yeah, yeah. That's so important because um, I I don't remember what percentage of the population has some kind of assignment on the autism spectrum not that it matters but it's much more prevalent than people realize but if it's not autism it's something else you know everybody has something that they're coping with and so this whole idea of being inclusive and resilient adaptive you know, we're going to include people, but we're also going to allow variation and be okay with it. And there's um, education that needs to happen too. Like one of the things that was very helpful um, that we discussed is the concept of a safe area Mm -hmm. and a concept of what to do if somebody's in a meltdown. So in a, a meltdown that has to do with autism, neuro, 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 yeah, right. Neuroanatomy, that's one thing. And people can really misunderstand and they are trying to help and they do exactly what's going to make it worse. Yeah, it's not intentional. I think what happens is people will come right in your space and they will increase the language demands, such as what's wrong? What do you need? How can I help? And that's that's kind of like going to set the person off. And what they yeah. need is peace, time, and quiet. Yeah. Space, time, and quiet. And if you see somebody that's having a meltdown... And maybe just stand to the side and stand by in case they need some kind of professional backup, but give space. Don't crowd in there. Don't think that you can help directly. Yeah. And it's like a seizure. It needs to run its course. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. And you've got your little refractory period where you can have another one. Mm. So, you know, you've got the rumbling phase before anything starts. But it's got to run its course. It's like a seizure. Um, and afterwards, the person still needs that quiet. So it doesn't like re-trigger. Yeah, exactly. And also just to recover, because you were in the middle of your day. 
And then for this particular thing, it's kind of like stimuli just stack up and overwhelm the neurosystem, right? Yeah, it can be something like maybe I didn't sleep well the night before. And then maybe um, I forgot to take my vitamins in the morning and my supplements that help keep me on a pretty good even keel. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm hungry and I forgot to eat. Maybe I need to use the bathroom, but I can't tell because mm -hmm. I have challenges with interoception. Um, so all of that's going on. And maybe I'm running a fever, but I can't tell. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Because for me, with stuff with my body, everything is, it's its very, very vague until it's at the five alarm fire stage. I don't know I'm hungry. I don't know I have a fever. I need to go to the bathroom. I can't tell those things a lot yeah. of the time. So that can all be going on. And then, um, you know, there could be a relationship issue happening or a health thing or anything. And then, or even stress from your dog. Right. If your dog is having a hard time coping. Right. That affects you. Yeah. His whining can set me off anything. So it's usually not just the thing that people point to and say, aha, that's the antecedent. It's usually things that are trigger stacking before that. Yeah. So folks, we're talking about this and it's complex because we start out with operant conditioning and we're, we're going here because we want to talk about why the oversimplification of operant conditioning as a way to equip people with autism to cope with life and, oh, by the way, look neurotypical, is so erroneous and damaging. And if it's damaging enough that it it's traumatic for a human child imagine what it's like if you're not the same species and people are talking down to you all the time and so on and so forth so there's some crossover there and part of the thing that i would say and patty correct me if you feel differently about it but I don't think there's any reason to look, there's not much reason to look at anybody differently. Like a dog is not a human, but that doesn't make him less than a human. I would agree, Casey. And another parallel I would draw is that um, infantilizing happens both with autistic people in how people were, how, how we're viewed and how animals today are often viewed in our society. Um, the concept yeah. of a child or a dog mom or a cat mom. Right, right. A pet parent, my first right. kids. Right. And it's nuts. very cringe, but <laughs> everything. just like when I couldn't speak, I could hear everything and I could still think. And I know that my dog understands more than just treat, go for a walk, good boy, and cookie. He totally gets other things. And all of the shades of meaning and the things that aren't said. Yes. Because he's listening, he's smelling, he's looking, all of those things. And I have to recognize 
Yeah, I do praise him, but it's more I recognize what he does. You did a really good job, Uyash. Good job. You did a really good job with that. That was hard, and you did a good job. That was outstanding. Yeah. Uh, one of our colleagues, um, Timmy Van Dyke, just shared an article in our community, and it's on parrots contacting each other via FaceTime. And the con the parrots liked some of the other parrots and didn't like others. And uh, they wanted to see each other, so to speak. And I, I knew it. I knew it because we have always taught the animals, not just what is my cell phone and get my cell phone, but the purpose of a cell phone. And for example, if I fall to the ground, please bring me my cell phone. And here's the function of a cell phone. I'm go going to call you and tell you something that you want to know via the cell phone. So with my horse, um, I tell a story about she was just getting over an illness and it was a terrible cold storm. And at the time, she was a pasture board horse. And so the owner of the stable took her inside because she just felt like it was too cold for her. And I thought maybe she was right. You know, the, the owner called me and she said, but Sarah's really upset. And I said, would you please tell her I'm on my way. I'm coming in but to get easy and eat her hay. And the owner said, well, she's right here. And I, I said, well, can you hold the phone up to her ears? Yes. So I told her that and I hear the owner saying in hushed tones, oh my goodness, she's getting easy. She's eating her hay. <laughs> and from that moment on, if there was a problem, she would call me and say, can you talk to Sarah? And now that the owner just recently sold the stable and has moved to a new area and her horse was um, good friends with Sarah. And she contacted me about setting up a FaceTime appointment for the horses. Yeah. And I'm like, of course. There, I mean, there's some logistical issues because uh, you know, the horses are outside and it is light out. And so for them to be able to see the screen, I have to think about that and so on. But do I think they'll remember each other? No question. Mm -hmm. In fact, the um, young lady that works with us used to be staff at the stable and she's wonderful with the horses. And when she came over the first time and the horses hadn't seen her probably, I don't know, six months or something, they were both really excited, but also offended. Oh, wow. Because she'd just been missing in action, right? Mm -hmm. You never call, you never write. Yeah, yeah. And so it's taken her a little while to get back into good graces, but they obviously care about her. You know, so um, 
as we go along with this, guys, it seems to me clear that the right answer is there's a right way of being with all living things. And now physicists are postulating that all creation is conscious. And I've believed that for some time. If I bump into a chair, I excuse myself, right? I don't need a chair being upset at me, especially if I'm going to sit on it. And if everything is conscious, it may be that what we perceive as differences in intelligence are just differences in perception, differences in manifestation, that there's this basic intelligence that is the means by which we are organized into beings. Mm -hmm. And whether you believe that or not, it doesn't really matter. But you have to come up with an effective way of interacting with others. And I would suggest that having integrity and treating all others as same as us is a good start. I think that's where it has to start, Casey. I think it has to start with believing in the other being's personhood. Yeah. And even if you don't understand it, you don't understand the differences, you can't perceive the differences or the reasons for them, to just know that they're there. So, for example, uh, you go out, there, there was a lady that would like to ride her horse up into the mountains on Vancouver Island. And she was just mystified because it seemed like such a great thing to do. And some days her horse didn't want to go on a ride. Mm -hmm. And so I asked her, do you have mountain lions there? Yes. Do you have bear there? Yes. And I suggested that she get scat and sign from her Department of Natural Resources, whatever, and teach the horse those things, to identify those things by name, to match the scent to the name. And then to ask him, before she asked him if he was willing to ride, to ask him, do you smell uh, bear or do you smell mountain lion? And lo and behold, generally, if he didn't want to go for a walk, he smelled one of those two things. And as we were discussing it, I said, well, do you want to go? And she said, no, actually, no, I don't. And what was really interesting is that since she opened the conversation, he was actually truthful. And he said to her on certain occasions, he just didn't want to go. So in other words, he would say he didn't smell mountain lion. He didn't smell bear. Mm -hmm. And he still didn't want to go. And now mm -hmm. she was in a position to negotiate with him. So he had a girlfriend named Ginger. And she would say, if we can go up in the mountains for half an hour, I will take you to see Ginger for at least 15 minutes. And he could agree or not agree. 
And then she could even refine, okay, half an hour, half hour here, half hour there. And if he said he would do it, he was, you know, true to that. Like, <laughs> I have known people that didn't always hold their end of the bargain. <laughs> but he did. He did. So it's like, wow. Do you really want to override his considered disobedience because he knows things that are very important to what you do that you can't know you know we just don't have that sense of smell mm -hmm. and I, I think that is with everything for example I was saying um I may find it easier to sit still in line than you do, but mm -hmm. you have better diction than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you're also incredibly insightful. Um, I often discuss emotional and that kind of issue with uh, that refer to my horses or that where my horses figure in the conversation. And uh, that that's extremely important. That's an extremely important asset. So one way of looking at the situation is that people with autism, people with red hair, gray animals are often tend toward the hyper aesthetic. They're more sensitive than the average population. And Sarah's one of those. Sarah's a gray horse. And mm -hmm. she found it very difficult to allow herself to be brushed. And to this day, she still hates it when I spray her for fleas. Not fleas, mm -hmm. flies. And, uh, but, but she will do it, but it's harder for her and the other side of it is that she senses things that I don't even pick up on you know and then she kind of makes me aware uh, like one time we were looking out across this field and there was a man walking across the field and I asked her do you know him is he a friend or a stranger and she said, stranger. And so later on, we had a chance to meet this person. And it turns out he had permission to come to this stable and hunt. And every time Sarah saw him, even after she met him, she would stop everything and just stare straight ahead at him as he came by. And She's like, Casey, I know you don't pick up on everything, but you need to know that there is somebody walking towards us with a gun and we know he shoots things. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a funny thing because I asked the man after he met Sarah, would you just call out to the animals, the horses, before you start across the field and just say hi to them, say them by name, be friendly because they're a little uncertain about the fact that you're going across their pasture.
they see you hunting, you've got a gun. And the guy said he would, but he didn't. Because I was there a couple of times and I saw that he didn't. And all the horses just stopped what they were doing and stood there and stared at him as he went across the field. Mm. There's so much there, isn't there? Yeah, there's so much inside each horse that isn't believed in by the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, of course I'll do that. Not. Why would I yell yeah. out to a horse? Yeah. And there's so much inside each of these horses. And what we were talking about before, when we were talking about that Sarah knows she's a teacher, she knows she's a guide. And when it comes to a lesson or teaching somebody something that she takes the broad view that she understands that this is to teach people in the future, that this is to teach people she doesn't even see right now. Yeah. And that she can help them. Yeah, that's <laughs> our audience is getting treated to a lot of this kind of subject lately because um, well, they just are. And that's so important. Like I'm always telling Sarah that what we're doing is making videos to teach other people. And she understands about the camera and she'll watch herself on video. In fact, with my dog, I have a hard time getting him to watch video of himself. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that whole thing of, well, I think you're stealing my soul. But um, Sarah and the other horses will watch it avidly. Oh, wow. Yeah, they really study it. You've got to be careful because of the glare from the sunlight and everything, it can be hard for them to see. So let's take it back to operant conditioning. We've covered the fact that no matter how different people appear in their actions, in their details, in their, you know, like uh, a snake looks different than a human, mm -hmm. but there's still so much in common. We've got 65% of our DNA is the same as a banana, for gosh sakes. <laughs> and 99 or 98 point something or the other is the same as a chimp. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to have way more in common. So now let's talk about operant conditioning as a strategy for teaching. So the first and the most important thing that we've covered is that it does not recognize consciousness, period. That's a really good way to put it. It does not recognize consciousness. Yeah, it's like, you know, the, the brain of the animal is a black box and it's irrelevant to us because the mechanics of this black box are that if you pair an operant, an action on the environment with something that this biology desires, then you'll get an increase in the desired behavior. That's all measured stuff and they've got the math to prove it and it's right there in their books and their charts and everything gets logged. And, you know, that's the focus is, can you do this five times out of, of six or something like that. Which is also mindless. Yeah. So 
can you do it five times out of six? Or I frequently hear do something eight times correctly before you change anything. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're flipping the learning to make sure it's rote and unconscious. Mm -hmm. Automatic. Yeah, automatic. They talk about neural pathways, neural ruts. It's like they just want the animal to just flow in that direction without thought. It's pattern training a lot of the time. training. And I saw a very uh, well-known person who was teaching service dogs to alert. Mm -hmm. And it involved hundreds, if not thousands, of throwing food on the ground and getting that animal to do an automatic sit to that was then going to be the alert right mm-hmm. well you see 9-11 and these dogs that learn to sit to alert and they're mm-hmm. sitting in all that toxic dust yeah and at that point that behavior is so entrenched literally that it would be almost impossible for the dog to change his behavior in response to the changed environment. Mm -hmm. So I don't want that. I even had a wonderful dog, beautifully trained, beautiful ambassador. I loved him dearly. So funny, Duncan. But Duncan equated being a good dog with an automatic sit. Mm -hmm. And one of the projects I wanted to do was to, uh, for some reason, all the certified trainers had big black dogs, right? So mm-hmm. I wanted to have the dog, you know, stand, bow, down, sit, stand, bow, down, sit, do do, do do, do do. And then I was going to have each dog, you know, like the first one start at the first beat and the second one on the second beat and the third one on the third beat, and we would get the wave, the big black wave. I was so so looking forward to that. And my dog went, you know, bow down, sit, stand, bow down, sit, stand, sit. He couldn't get past. The maximum I ever got him to go in a row was three cycles. Because he just couldn't stand it anymore. So it literally stopped us from doing this really fun, interesting behavior because the neurological pressure of all that conditioning mm-hmm. was too much. Yeah. And and I don't want that. I want, you know, a, another place that we hear about things like that are in barn fires where you take animal uh, horses out of stalls and set them loose to go run to the pasture and they run back into their stalls. For safety in their minds, yeah. Yeah, and perish. Yeah. So we don't, we don't want, you and I don't want rote training. We don't want to impose it. And here's another thing. It's not very efficient. 
It is not efficient at all. To have to do eight responses before you can move forward a step does not make sense. Right. So for those of you that don't know, in SATs, we teach in opposing pairs. So let's say we're going to teach left and right, and we do those at the same time. So we'll demonstrate left, we'll demonstrate right. We'll ask the animal to demonstrate left back to us, demonstrate right back to us. And then we'll randomly pick one, you know, demonstrate right again. And then we're on to the next step. And maybe we've just done left and right. And maybe the next one, we're going to talk about ears. So no sooner do we identify the ears and there's two ears, one and two left and right or right and left. And so now we've cross-referenced ears with right versus left. And then we might talk about dorsal versus ventral or top versus mm -hmm. bottom and point out to the dog that, look, you've got a head on the top and you've got a chest on the bottom and you have a right side to your chest and a left side to your chest. And we're building the animal's understanding of how his knowledge relates to the rest of his world. Mm -hmm. And we don't just go in and teach a concept like left versus right so you can shake your left paw. We teach it in a broad sense that, you know, left is oriented in relationship to you. Whereas another thing we'll teach early on is north, south, east, and west, which is oriented to the earth's you know, magnetic field and the sun and the moon and all that kind of stuff. So in a field, you might go to the left corner or the north, uh, the northeast corner, and that might make you turn to your right in order to do that. But those are two different things. And the animals understand that there's no problem. And they can understand uh, steps or numbers. And one of the things I do just to check on that is I'll ask Sarah, like right now her thing is bananas. She's bananas over bananas. And I'll say, do you want two or do you want one? And she shoots me a look like, oh, what are you nuts? Two. <laughs> do you want four or two? Four. Uh-huh. You know, so she obviously knows. So now let's talk about your experience with learning. Did you feel like when you were learning concepts and so on as a youngster through operant conditioning, did you feel that you got taught the broader relevance of information or did you no. feel like, okay, so how did you feel? Everything was pinpoint. Everything was um, a lot of pressure and very encapsulated down into a pinpoint of learning one thing at a time, whether it is quiet hands, um, touch nose, 
that kind of thing. It was just very small things to learn. Um, and there was no broader view of this is why we're learning this. This is how it will help you. I yeah, remember, yeah, wondering, it just, when I got through with school and I graduated from the 12th grade, what was that all about? I mean, nobody ever told me that we were there to learn and that you were supposed to hold on to something so that you could add it to the next thing. Right. Um, it, it was very vague to me. It was very vague to me. Um, so not harvesting from the opportunity. Because, right. Because creating anticipation for what you're about to learn and why you're about to learn it is recognized in education as being absolutely critical for success in learning. Like when I got my master's degree in education, you know, we were told, you don't teach anybody. They teach themselves. Mm -hmm. you, you facilitate their learning by helping them to see the value. This is why you learn this, that, or the other. It's yeah. kind of like with my dog. Um, we want you to be easy around other dogs. And if you can be, then maybe we can take a class about sniffing and sniffing boxes and finding sense inside of boxes. And you would like to take that class. But for us to do that, I need to know that you're easy around other dogs first. Yeah. So that's why we're doing that. That's well one reason. And I know how much he wants that class. And I know that he understands what I'm describing as the truth. And that in my case, I can't go to a dog school unless he's calm around other dogs. Yeah. Even though in that venue, they tend to separate the dogs. Mm -hmm. And I get that. But I need him calm around other dogs to do it. Yeah. So about a month ago, a friend stopped by with her dog and said, let's train. And Uyak was, I didn't think we would be able to go out there without him screaming. Mm -hmm. He saw the other dog. And there was maybe a half a wine or two, but he puffed out his chest and he was determined. He walked calmly right past the other dog back. And I couldn't believe it. We kept doing back and forth. And when I stopped, he did that auto sit. And I haven't asked for that in forever. Yeah. And I don't really make it a thing, but in yeah. his mind, in his mind, he was doing it to prove to me look, I'm really working. My mind is in working mode. Look at my auto sit. We don't do it. We don't value it. We don't even, it's not a thing in our lives anymore. But look, I'm showing you my auto sit so you can see how good I'm being and that I'm in a training mindset around these other dogs. And I kept saying, good job. You're doing great. I'm really proud of you. Look how and easy you are. That's awesome. You related, you related his ability to self-manage to his ability to um, bring things into his life. Mm -hmm. Like you get, yeah. you, you connected him with how self-management empowers him. And he can use it. He can use his sats and getting easy. He can use that to get something he wants in the future to gain that class. Exactly. So, yeah, and that's the if-then statement. Bill Moshanyi says, I don't understand why more scientists don't use this. I'm right there with them. 
you know, uh, we use it all the time. I've been using it way before I um, had read the great works of Vilma Shani. But the fact is that we, you know, so many people will not use that. They will not believe that the animal can make value judgments. And I remember I had a client at a seminar and her dog just was not getting easy and she didn't want to directly relate with me. She was a German shepherd. And so I didn't think it was going to help this dog to just start doing the body work for the owner. And I said to the owner, well, consider just telling her that if she gets easy on the ground, you'll take her for a walk. And the dog never made eye contact. And I think that's something erroneous that people often look for. Didn't right, make they wait for it. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, the dog didn't look at my face. And so therefore he doesn't, he's not listening to me. Nope, nothing to do with that. And the dog just immediately went to the ground and the owner smiles amusedly and says, wow, it's almost like she understood what you said. Take <laughs> a walk now, <laughs> right now. Yeah. Right. Okay, so an, a place where this takes us right into is not only do we not want to have rote learning that we don't relate to the purpose for the animal and we don't um engage them like they don't prove to us that it's worth it to them you know by the way you and i do it if we have the if then statement we tell the animal what he has to do in order to get a certain consequence and then he tells us if that's worth it to him by performing that mm -hmm. right operant conditioning there's no negotiation there's no recognition that the animal has a vote or that it needs to be relevant to the animal it's much more uh either you can look at it as an automatic thing this is a cue and you do what the cue says because that's what your biology directs you to do because we programmed you or you can look at it as some trainers do. I am the superior being and I am directing you to do this. And so therefore you will do it. Or I will show you how I can prove that I'm the superior being. So one of the things that we do is sometimes I call it training by Lego. We use targets so we use bridges to tell the animal the instant that they do something that we're trying to get to but we use targets to focus their attention and to show them where that behavior is going to happen where it's going to move to that kind of thing and we then take each little type little, little tiny piece of behavior like a two-finger target or a pole target, or a station target. And we name each of those, and sometimes they have more than one name. So if you're holding those three targets, that name could be hear, or touch, or even target. But 
Well, actually, it's we we say it's going to be here because we want the dog to be uh, know that they're coming to us. That's the top yes. priority is to come to us. But mm-hmm. then we would also give those things a second name. This is here when I'm holding it. But if it's hanging on the fence over there, it's a station target. So it can be a station target. And here, if it's if I'm holding it, but if it's over on the fence, it's a station target. And this is walk. And this is walk one step. And this is walk two steps. And you have the concept of number and you have the concept of stepping and walking. And now we can combine those things. And so between bridges and targets and vocabulary and naming pieces of behavior, which we can then combine in infinite combinations, we can train so efficiently and we can train really little tiny things. And as a matter of fact, operant conditioning came to a relative standstill compared to bridge and target training because at that, this was like in the early 80s, everybody was standing around waiting for the animal to happen to do something that was a little more like what they wanted it to do. And they do all these demos with people with chalk and there's a chalkboard and they kind of look at the chalk and then the person would pick the chalk up and then they would start to walk on the, or write on the chalkboard. Yes. And they get, you know, marked and they would get food and all this other kind of stuff. Well, hello. If that was a parrot, it's not going to write on the chalkboard folks. Mm-hmm. you're going to be there a lot longer waiting for that thing to happen. So they were picking uh, things to accomplish with shaping that were already part of the cultural repertoire. These people already knew that if you see chalk, you're going to write on a chalkboard. And they didn't think that you were going to eat the chalk, for example, which might be more what a parrot would tend to check out about it. So they didn't have a way to describe what they wanted to the animal. It didn't even occur to practitioners of operant conditioning that it was their job to explain what they wanted to the animal. Now, when I say this, bridge and target trainers, that's a subset of operant conditioning. And these were marine mammal trainers that came after Keller Breland and Marion Breland. And um, they used extensions of their hands to work with, which were target poles to work with animals that were, for example, in the water or in the air over their head and they needed to be able to reach. And they started developing the ability to show the animal exactly what was wanted by kind of like drawing it with these targets. Mm-hmm. But operant conditioning was still waiting around for them, for animals to happen into the right orientation so that they could then get rewarded. And I remember early on, uh, Karen Pryor publishing that you could teach an animal to target 
in six to, I'm going to say six to eight weeks, but it actually, <laughs> I know, I, but I actually believe it said six to Sorry 12 to weeks <laughs> or eight to 12 weeks. Right. But what the, what, what they were doing is putting a Coke bottle in the middle of a room, mm-hmm. uh, like a stall with a horse. And it might take six to eight weeks for the horse to happen to go over and mindfully touch this bottle so that they could then, you know, bridge them. Hey, as you well know, Patty, we teach both bridges and uh, the two finger target in less than a minute. It was so. And the thing is, I remember teaching the bridges and the two finger target. And my dog was, it was as if he was on the edge of his seat. He couldn't wait. He wanted to be involved. He wanted to be included. Mm. And you could just see, I know what I'm supposed to do. I I know what I'm supposed to do. Can I do it? Can I do it? Yes. And then he would just zoom right for those two fingers. And he loved targeting after that. It was just, it was almost like it was empowering. Because it wasn't random like that and waiting for him to bump into something. It was involving him and believing in his abilities and his personhood and his consciousness and his will and his understanding, believing in it and And, allowing him to be part of it. Share powerful stuff, you know, like, look, if you can do this, we can go for a walk. If you can do so around this time. Uh, there was a lot of tension between uh, people that did rote operant conditioning training with dogs and people that were using bridge and target and concepts and vocabulary mm-hmm. and so on. And I remember being at a seminar and saying that, you know, you needed to have a more efficient way to teach the animal. And this one woman challenged me to a train-off. And I don't normally do this kind of thing, but I was so confident. Yeah, like in other words, the people didn't come there to see the the big train-off. You know, it's, it's for the people that are coming, they want to learn how to solve their problem. But I figured, let's put this to bed. And... So I set out to train this dog, which is not a specially selected dog. It is just the dog that's in front of me. And this other person is setting out to train the dog. But she was not waiting for the animal. She wasn't doing free shaping. Mm -hmm. She whipped the food out and starts luring that dog all over the place. Mm -hmm. I was indignant. Because that isn't that isn't how operant conditioning developed or was taught. Luring was not part of it. And I guess there were some misguided people early on in the marine mammal industry that did lure animals. Like you'll see some old pictures of people up on ladders and they're hanging over the water with a fish hanging out of their mouth, right? They're holding mm-hmm. fish. Well, I happen to know that some of those people had terrible bruises, lost teeth, the whole, 
you know, nine yards. That isn't a good way to motivate an animal to do something. It's, it, oh, it's just a very clumsy way to train. And we don't have to do that. So what people should think about, if you think that luring is a perfectly good way to train, well, you're welcome to do whatever you want, but consider these two things. One is, have you ever followed anyone home? Or let's say you had to you know, go from the airport to a party and they say, follow me, I'll take you there. And so you follow them and you get there just fine. Do you know how to get there again on your own? And mm. if not, why not? Because you just went there. They just showed you exactly how to go. What's the problem? Mm -hmm. And the problem is you were not set for learning acquisition. You were set for following. Mm -hmm. And it's not an efficient way to learn. You might do the behavior quickly, but you will not consciously understand what it is you just did. But here's another thing. For Sarah recently, I've been doing videos of her ability to learn to move her body sideways. Now, when you're riding a horse, that's traditionally done by the person using the reins and the leg aids to make a box that pressures that horse not to move exactly the way they understand to move, but to respond to cues, which are manipulative. And in fact, I was told that you can't teach an animal just to move sideways, that you have to let, for a horse, that they have to move forward and then you can turn them. So of course I had to go see, could you do it this other way? Well, you can but it isn't easy. But let me ask all of our listeners, if I had to teach an animal to go around its exhibit or its kennel or its yard or whatever, as fast as possible, could I get that with luring, even without bridges and targets? I have to admit, yes, you could. But... If you want your dog or your horse or your camel or your elephant to move his shoulder and hip in direct contact with your hands and move directly to the side, how are you going to get that with luring? How are you going to trim a hoof with luring? Mm -hmm. So are you going to be relegated right back to free shaping again, which is trial and error and very inefficient? Or are you going to use bridges to mark the time and targets to mark the location and vocabulary to kind of store what we've just learned so we can refer to it later? And you guys can do whatever you want. I'm doing the latter. Mm -hmm. We had a trainer that was going in for 
uh, her dog was like one of the top earning dogs in the country. He did all kinds of television and movies and ads. And she um, took him into, I, I've got to make sure I'm, I'm telling the right story. Because there's so many stories about this particular dog. His name was Stamp. And he was also a top agility dog. He was a little uh, Norfolk Terrier. And, oh, I remember what it was. So she she has a job for some kind of movie or something. So she trains for exactly what the director told her to do. And directors can be very, very specific. I want a dog with a ring around his right eye and, you know, two heart-shaped pretzel-looking things on the left eye. And, and I want him to put his you know, right, left paw on the top of his head and his right paw on the top of his head. And then I want him to, you know, touch him over the top. So you do all that. And, and maybe it takes you three weeks to do that. And then you actually get there and the director looks at it and he immediately goes, no, I don't like that. Could you do blah, blah, blah instead? Well, now, you know, they're now shooting the movie. You don't have any time to go home and train that. But because of the way we train with sats, it's not a big deal because we say to the dog, okay, so, you know, you've got your right and left paw, you know, you've got your head. And before you were doing right and left paw on top of your head and then paw to paw, paw to head, paw to paw. So now can you put your left paw under your, your left paw on the ground, chin on the paw and your right paw on top of your head? And we will call this whatever new name you give it. Okay, so it's got uh, paw on the ground, chin on the paw, your right paw on top of the head. One, two, three, and we're calling it Abra. Okay, can you do this? And the dog's like, okay, 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 we've got it. It doesn't take two weeks. We've already done that training. It's like teaching a kid to read with phonetics. You don't have to teach them how to read over again every time you get to a new word. They apply the phonetics to be able to figure out the new word. And so then you just explain what it means and you're off to the races. And that's how our training is. We create all these little elements. They have names and then we combine them. And when the training needs change, we can just change the elements and give it a new name. And the only thing the animal has to learn is the new order, what, the, what that particular set of elements is going to be and the new order. Mm -hmm. Now, Patty, let's see if we can relate this back to your experience in early life with operant conditioning, conditioning education, did you ever get anywhere near this degree of complexity? Not at all. No, I think, I think it was very, everything was very basic back then. And I found that very frustrating and it made a gulf 
between myself and yeah. whoever was working with me. Yeah. Because I knew they didn't understand that I was a person inside. It was more, um, I think that they meant well. I think that they wanted yeah. the best for me. I'll say that. Yeah. I'll be fair and say that they came with a good heart. But, but the methodology they were using. Tools. Yeah, the methodology they were using, the, the mindset that they had. It was just what you said. There was no room to recognize consciousness on my part. Well, and it's like, I know you as, well, first I met you as a student and you didn't have any interest in getting certified, but mm -hmm. because you uh, form friendships with other people in the class, you went ahead and started studying with them. Right, right. And then I was just, I kind of think I kind of tricked you into it. Like I just started giving you the test verbally and you got a hundred percent on it. But it was so fun and it was so engaging and I was super motivated. And that's the thing though, is I think with, with autistic people, part of it is there are things that we want. There are things that we are passionate about. Yes. And that's the same, whether it's a rhino or a dog or a horse, there are things that they care about too. And until you tap into this passion, you are not going to see the ability. Like uh, your average kid is not going to wow you. They're not going to go to the trouble to impress you with all their ability and intelligence if they don't see what's in it for them. Mm -hmm. my, my nephew was an indifferent student in school, even though he was a very intelligent guy. And then you got him onto the subject of World War II aircraft. Uh -huh. He knew everything about them. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't that he couldn't focus or he couldn't learn. He just didn't care. And if we do not do the work to find the passion, to set that passion loose, to, to aim it at something useful that we can collaborate with the learner on, then we are always going to underestimate that being in front of us. I okay. agree. And I would also have to add that just the way that SATS is, um, you're going to get buy-in because you're recognizing that animal's personhood. So you're going to get some of that buy-in right away before they even realize they can go to a sniffy class or yeah. they can go for that walk or whatever it is they want. It's, oh, you actually know I'm in here? Yeah, that's huge, isn't it? You know I have a mind, even though I'm a camel or a dog or a fish or whatever? Well, it's almost like you blow their cover. You know, it's like, well, I didn't realize you had enough intelligence to recognize I have this ability. And so all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe she actually knows even more. And but then that's so motivating in and of itself because they want to be included. They want information. Yeah. They want to be able to steer their own ship. Yes. And they want to know th that while they're learning, while they're testing themselves out, You've got their back. 
Yeah. You know, you, you will watch out for things. You'll tell them things that maybe were problems that they didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yesterday I was out with Sarah in the round pen and a friend had given us a piece of bamboo and I, it, Dave had used it to close off the gate to the round pen. Mm -hmm. And I just, uh, let it fall to the ground. And Sarah was mm -hmm. fine with that. You know, she's already used to that kind of sound and everything. But what happened when we were done is her hook hit it on the way going out the gate. And when that happened, she startled. And when she startled, she ran into me. She actually oh. hit the back of my leg with her hoof. Oh. And I froze because of course I could get annihilated, but she froze too. And I turned around and looked at her and she had chagrin on her face and I said I know I know you didn't mean to do that but I am such a weakling that that could be enough to really hurt me mm -hmm. and then we went over it a couple of times um she just you know it was just such a casual thing it just suddenly appeared in her environment and she didn't think about it again you know she didn't think about it right then Mm -hmm. until the thing came up and I know Sarah is extremely responsible like it, when I feed her banana which she's nuts about I have to look it up to see what's in that stuff but she'll get my whole finger like she wants to lick the banana off my finger and the whole bit she'll uh -huh. get it between her lips between her teeth and lick the banana off my finger and she will not bite down period. Like mm -hmm. if I push my finger between her teeth, she will separate her teeth. So she does not bite. It's mm -hmm. almost like Casey, I love you, but you're really stupid. So I have to compensate uh -huh. Uh -huh. for your inability to process the fact that teeth chomp, you know, horse chompers can be dangerous to you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff. So if we can, team up with our animal partners and forearm them with critical information. Like think about this first instead of when it's too late. What are you going to do when all of a sudden a bag pops or all of a sudden a bag goes blowing by? Mm -hmm. So all of these things, I think the animals like these, they, they kind of love them and hate these exercises. Because a lot of them, they don't enjoy doing it, but they love the empowerment. Yes. It's like, okay, now I can cope with this. Mm -hmm. And because I can cope with this, we can go out for a walk here. And being included in collaborating with you, too. Yeah, yeah. Then the it collaboration, makes I think, is big. In We're fact, teams. right now, yeah, right now, my own dog who normally would be asleep right now, he's all curled up, he's on his bed, but his almond-shaped eyes are open. It's very clear he's listening to your voice. Everything that you're saying, because you never know, what if you, <laughs> what if you teach me how to do something else fun like Target yeah. again, or something where he can be involved. 
Well, and Patty, remember during the class, um, he would come and watch sometimes. The dogs were very yes. aware when there was bridging, they would watch video from time mm -hmm. to time. And um, they recognize our voices. So I should take a moment yeah. and say, Uyak, nice to know you're out there. Thank you for letting Patty right. spend so much of her evening doing this. So Patty, I guess. His eyes are big. Yeah. He's like, and believe me, it's <laughs> getting late. So Patty, let's make sure we've covered. I think this is such an important topic because you have direct experience to speak from the perspective of anybody that's learning with this technique of operant conditioning and to comment on why we need to like use it. That's fine. But don't make it the, it's not the high mark. It's a little tool. It's like, don't elevate the egg beater to being the queen of the kitchen. There's, yeah. There's more things that we need to do, you know, to be good trainers, good stewards, good guides, good uh, responsible partners that act with integrity for our animals. Are there, is there uh, anything else that you think of that we should share with people tonight to consider? about where where they take their training to, wh why we don't want to stop at operant conditioning. Not that we don't think it's great, but it's just not the, the last bus stop. That is one grain of sand on an entire beach, on an entire coastline. And consider instead being co-collaborators with your animals. Yeah. That pretty much says it all. Well, shall we call it a night there? Sure. Thank you, Casey. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, joining with me in this. I always love catching up with you and I love collaborating with you. Same here, Casey. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And Uyak, thank you to you as well. And everyone, please um, share the podcast with your friends. As I like to say, you'll contaminate their minds. And that's okay. a good thing. And uh, we'll see you next time. You take care. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.